Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella. We're back in the normal time slot for Coach Spins. How's it going, buddy? It's Sunday evening for you in the United States. How are things going on your end? Sam, uh, things are things are good. We're ready for another week, another day to talk hoops here. Uh, I have some good news and some bad news to deliver right here at the at the top of the pod. Uh, the the bad news is particularly for you, Sam, that my New York Jets did not get the job done for you today. Uh, we we choked against the Miami Dolphins, and now the Pittsburgh Steelers are not playoff bound. So my deepest apologies there. It's the goddamn Jets. Yeah, I am. I am used to hearing that. Uh, but the good news, Sam, the very very good news. Baba Miller. Baba Miller's free. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to see Baba Miller in action this week, and I. I'm freaking excited, man. I'm so pumped. I love Baba Miller. This is just, this is like chef's kiss on what's been an otherwise pretty good weekend. I'm so glad Baba Miller's back. I'm so glad for you that you get to watch Baba Miller play basketball, but that's not why we're here today. We just wanted to talk about it at the top because uh, Baba Miller was wrongfully suspended for 16 games this season. And we're excited that he stuck it out, frankly, at Florida State. Like there was every opportunity where he could have gone back overseas, but now we get to see him play for Florida State, hopefully. Couldn't be more excited about that. More importantly, we're here to talk about the NBA's sophomore class, the 2021 NBA draftees 1.5 years into their career. It's a really interesting class. It's a class that last year I thought really, really was impressive as a group of rookies that really played well for their age. And this year, I don't want to say they've taken a step back, but maybe they just haven't taken the jump in many ways that uh, people anticipated following such strong rookie years. And we'll talk about that and why there are a number of reasons for why maybe the rookie class hasn't or the rookie class last season hasn't taken that sophomore leap uh, that some prospects do. Sometimes there's a sophomore slump and you go into a third year and you're the post hype breakout, but Let's just kind of start there. What do you think is going on in terms of why this second year group hasn't quite taken that next step toward superstardom in many cases? Like none of the guys in this class, as far as I can think of, are going to be all-stars this year. Yeah, I don't think so either. And and look, I think it's important to note that development is not linear, right? That, that yep. you don't just show up at the beginning of the next season every year and you're magically a better basketball player. You're better at one specific thing. It'd be nice if it worked that way, but development doesn't quite have that same type of reliable trajectory. I think the other part of this, Sam, 
is that we aren't seeing a ton of these guys have their roles change too much within the the teams that they're playing on, at least in terms of expanding yeah. their role. That a lot of them came into situations as rookies where they were, you know, given either a long leash for some guys, maybe like Cade Cunningham or Jalen Green. They fit nicely next to some other star players that were on the roster. A guy like Evan Mobley comes to mind there, or Josh Giddy. Or we're seeing the addition of other stars in Orlando, Franz Wagner had a really impressive rookie season. Now he's sharing some of the reps that he had last year with a guy like Paolo Bancaro. So I think that there's just, there hasn't been much change to the roles that these guys found themselves in as rookies. So having that extra leap isn't there as much as opportunity, as much as it is kind of their skill level. Well, and on top of that, I do want to note that some of these guys have gone through injuries like Kate Cunningham is going to miss the rest of the year. Scotty Barnes has had a couple of injuries throughout the course of the year that he's played through for the most part, but you never know. Like there's a fairly real chance in my opinion, at least this is my take on it, that those things might be playing a role in terms of decreased explosiveness and power driving toward the rim. Uh you know, Jalen Suggs missed time with an injury. It's just that, like, some of these guys are struggling to really get on the court as often as they have previously. And also just some of these guys are in a similar role, like you said. For instance, the Cavs, like, you could have made a case for Evan Mobley taking a leap in terms of role this year. Then the team went out and acquired Donovan Mitchell, and that was never going to happen after that. Um you know, Scotty Barnes is surrounded by Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, who is taking a bigger offensive leap than what I think a lot of people have realized. Uh, obviously, Fred Van Vliet is in a contract year potentially, so he's another guy that uh, needs to get a lot of usage there. So I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of just maybe these guys situationally in many cases aren't quite ready yet to be able to earn the reps from established stars that are 27, 28 years old. Like it's not, it's not a fault of Scotty Barnes, for instance, that Pascal Siakam, one of the 15 best players in the world is better than he is right now. No doubt about it, Sam. And, and I think that as we talk about that, that's very uh, pointed towards the, the high ceiling offensive players in this class. What, what I loved about the 2021 draft class a year and a half ago and what has persisted throughout their pro careers is that this is an incredibly deep class of role players too. And when yeah. those guys can come in right off the bat and carve out that role, I think sometimes we as fans or, or people who love watching basketball expect them to continue to grow beyond that role when that might not necessarily be the best usage of their future or, or what they do well on a basketball court. And I'm thinking of guys like Herb Jones in New Orleans or, uh, you know, Io DeSunmu in Chicago. Like there are guys who can come in and play a really specific role from day one in the NBA, but they're not necessarily going to grow on top of that to become 15, 16, 17 point per game scorers. So let's just jump in. So the way that I want to do this, the way I've structured this is purely in terms of draft order in the 2021 draft uh, for the first 10 guys, right? Then we'll kind of jump and skip around a little bit with some of the other guys that have been impressive. I don't want to wait much past 10 to talk about Santi Aldama, for instance, who's been really, really good. Uh, but I do want to do draft order if only because I don't want to be seen as like, 
favoring someone else or, you know, ranking someone else. I, I don't want to be seen as ranking these guys. Basically it's why uh, we're just going to do it off of draft order. Uh, I will say throughout this conversation, we might mention that we would take this guy over that guy, but purely just in terms of structure, we're going to go in terms of draft order. If you're looking for a specific prospect uh, and maybe it takes producer Jacob a minute to do timestamps on this afterward, uh, that's the order we're going in here. So we're going to start with Cade Cunningham and we're not going to spend a crazy amount of time on Cade Cunningham because I just don't think it's worth it after he has missed time uh, throughout the course of this season and will miss the rest of this season. So Kay Cunningham in those 12 games that he played averaged 19.9 points, six rebounds, six assists, shot 41% from the field, 28% from three, 84% from the line. I'm still very in on Cade. I still have a lot of real estate on Cade Cunningham Island. If you look uh, at the games, in his last seven games, uh, he averaged 23 points, eight rebounds, seven assists, and shot 46% from the field and 84% from the line. He was much more efficient. He was kind of getting to his spots in a much easier manner. It's just that those first five games were kind of rough for Cade. Um, I'm not. I'm a little bit worried about Cade, but I'm not worried about him in terms of the shooting, like many people are, uh, I do think he'll shoot long-term. Like I, I don't really have that concern. A lot of his shots right now are pull-up shots. And I think that is, he plays more with Jade Nivey, who can be a primary creator uh, some of the time, especially out in transition. He'll find easier three-pointers. But I'm a little bit worried about the lack of separation that he gets from time to time in the NBA. Uh but still do believe Cade Cunningham will be an all-star caliber player in the NBA. Agree. He's going to be an all-star caliber player. Uh, Agree that I'm not too worried long-term about the lack of a jump shot falling right now. His mechanics seem very solid. Again, as he gets easier ones, like you said, he's going to find ways to bring that percentage up. Everything's very contested, very much off the dribble right now. When it comes to the separation, Definitely a conversation that we've been having back to his time at Oklahoma State and and probably before that. But Detroit has never spaced the floor well around him. And that's due as much to the scheme that they play in as as the lack of shooting. They don't have either right now. They have no three-point floor spacing around Cade in his first year and 12 games that he's played. And they've been running a ton of kind of jumbled offensive sets that don't maximize the space around him. So when you're a, an athlete who's big and strong, but not necessarily the quickest guy in the world, space is your friend because it allows you to muscle guys one-on-one and not feel like you're going to dribble it into a help defender. You're just always operating in traffic. He needs an overhauled offensive scheme in order to get the most out of him. So before hitting the panic button on his separation issues, I just want to see what he looks like in a more modern spaced offense. I think that's where Troy Weaver and the Pistons front office have to focus moving forward is making sure that a generational type of playmaker like Cade can be is surrounded by the spacing that's going to allow the lane to open up so he can both attack and create easy looks for everybody else. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that what Dwayne Casey has done, as I talked about last week on the show, has been impressive in any regard whatsoever a lot of these a a lot of these like mid post 
you know, opportunities for Sadiq Bey and Boyan Bogdanovich. Like th- those were existing even when Cade was playing. Uh, on top of it, I do wonder a little bit if like Troy Weaver is the right GM, not to say Troy Weaver is a bad evaluator of talent. He certainly is not. I wonder if he's the right GM to get the most out of a Cade Cunningham type of core, if only because Troy does seem to really evaluate and value big men at a really high level. Uh, As we've seen with a situation like Luka Doncic down in Dallas, they just spread it all out around him and let Luka rock. That's not what's happening in Detroit. That's not to say the Cade is as good as Luka, but I think that Dallas with another guy that theoretically could struggle with separation spaced it all the way out and gave Luca all of the opportunity to use his IQ, his intelligence, his shot making ability. We haven't seen that yet from Detroit. And I wonder if we're going to see it. I do think they need to make a coaching change by the end of the year at the very least and give these guys a new look in terms of scheme and in terms of format. But I will be interested to see how they go about building this team around Cade Cunningham moving forward, given the things that Troy Weaver seems to value in the ways that he seems to utilize his assets. I think the important part of this, Sam, is that we've seen enough through the year and 12 games of Cade Cunningham to know that he's going to be impactful enough in the NBA as a focal point on the offensive end if a roster is properly built around him and in terms of just first couple years in the league for a lot of these guys that have number one alpha male potential, that's what I'm looking for. Are they good enough to deserve that type of roster building around them as a piece? I think Cade Cunningham has checked that box already. I think so. I will say, I don't know if he is like the number one guy on a conference finalist team yet. Like, I think that is what needs to be figured out at this point. Uh, I feel good about him being like a very high level player, certainly a one or two option on like a pretty good team. I don't know the degree to which he is that guy yet. And in part, that's probably because of coaching, but also in part, like there are some things he needs to fix. But let's, let's move on from Cade because we have seen less of him than some of these other guys. Okay. Let's go to number two, which was Jalen Green. The Houston Rockets took Jalen Green. Uh, Jalen Green has at times looked incredibly explosive and looked like a future extremely high level, 25-point-per-game guy. The thing that he's done really, really well in his sophomore year, in my opinion, he's almost doubled his foul uh, free throw rate, which is fantastic. He's been able to drive to the paint, draw that contact, get easy points. The problem is that I think he has regressed a little bit in terms of like shooting and shot selection. Uh, If you look at his effective field goal percentage, uh, it is like quite a bit lower than last year. He had a 50.8 effective field goal percentage last year. He has a 47.7 effective field goal percentage this year. That's a pretty substantial drop when league efficiency is actually up this season uh, across the board. His true shooting percentage is buoyed a bit by that ability to get to the foul line. It's 53.4, but that is still a true shooting percentage that is below average by about three and a half points uh, compared to league average. Now that would be okay. The thing that I'm actually worried about is him on defense 
I think he's been really, really bad on defense this year. Uh, fighting through screens, his attention to detail on the backside. I really, I really, really don't like what I've seen from him defensively. And on top of it, it really feels like the Houston coaching staff is kind of empowering him without real accountability to do whatever he wants when you watch them. And that is, in my opinion, not the best way to go about developing players. I love the flashes that you see, and I still buy Jalen Green being like a 25-point-per-game scorer. I I just wonder how impactful and efficient and how much it's going to work on like a winning team I like, I don't think he's a number one option on like a conference finals team, I guess is what I would say. Uh, I think they need a centerpiece and like a focal point that kind of works around Jalen really, really well, while also acknowledging that I love the skill level. I love the explosiveness athletically. I love uh, the fact that he's been more aggressive. I just don't love some of the tendencies and like the lack of accountability that seem to be there. So there's, there's a lot to unpack with that on the defensive end of the floor, Sam. Uh, It's the, the conundrum that you face whenever you draft a really, really talented young player and you build around him a super, super young team is that there are no veterans, no professionals around to kind of show a, a guy the ropes to hold him accountable in that regard. And as a coaching staff for Houston, They've got so many different areas to address, holes to fix, players to try to work through that the one guy that's going to have the longest leash there is the number two overall pick and the guy who can just go out there and get buckets anyway that can kind of play through some of those mistakes on the other end of the floor. It's damaging long-term if not handled the right way, if never reeled in appropriately. But this is where I am in terms of not wanting to throw away any Jalen Green stock as a result of this. I think we've seen a lot of hyper-athletic, really, really talented guards and wings come into the NBA over the last half decade or so and struggle on offense initially, carry a really, really heavy offensive burden. And when they mature and when they get good infrastructure around them and other veterans and they've just gone through the reps enough, they tend to figure it out. I remember hearing many of these same criticisms three, four years ago about Devin Booker, a regular season chucker, a guy who put up numbers on a bad team, but he was never going to be able to scale that down offensively. And he was never going to be able to defend well enough in a playoff setting. Well, guess what? The Phoenix Suns made it the NBA finals. Anthony Edwards, same criticisms about him. Super athletic, never taps into it on defense. Guess what he did in the playoffs this past year against the Memphis Grizzlies? He looked pretty impressive in terms of his on-ball tendencies. Still a lot to clean up because he's really young, but he's at least made strides in the right direction. I am not ready to give up on Jalen Green in that regard, while also acknowledging it's pretty damn bad right now on the defensive end of the floor. And this is where I wish the Rockets had a couple more adults in the room in terms of guys that they can throw on the floor that are veterans. Maybe it's big men that can make up for that. Just a real like Pat Beverly MF or somebody who's not going to let that slide from a cultural standpoint, because when you have what 
eight out of your top nine guys receiving minutes that are still on their rookie contract. It's yes. a bunch of kids that are really struggling to figure out how to hold themselves accountable versus hold each other accountable. And it's it's the push-pull dynamic of hitting the reset button. It's why starting from scratch on, on a team building standpoint is really hard in the NBA. But Jalen Green has the athleticism. He has the tools to be able to figure this out. It's been rough, though. It's been really rough thus far. Yeah, and I'm, I also want to bring up the team context that Jalen Green is in. He doesn't get any easy shots, it feels like. It feels like it is often like my turn, your turn between he and Kevin Porter. I've just like really not liked what I've seen from Kevin Porter in terms of specifically developing a younger group of players that you have a lot of a lot of stock in basically. I think that Kevin Porter kind of tends to turn the ball over a lot. He dribbles the ball a lot. I think that like, he's actually like turned into an okay defender, but like, you know, at the same token, I don't know that he's great at it either. It, he just feels like a great sixth man to me. And instead he's the one that's kind of bringing the ball up the court all the time and like kind of letting kind of initiating the offense more often than others. And that's a, then when Jalen gets his chances, he's not being created those opportunities in advantage situations all that often by Kevin Porter. It's more that Jalen is running out in transition, trying to get opportunities that way. And then having to like create his own uh, in the half court. And because he's so athletic and because he's so explosive, there is real potential for him to do that. He's just not quite there yet in terms of like his craft and that's okay he's still super young and has all the tools in the world I still buy him like I said as a 25 point per game guy I don't know that he's necessarily like a number one option moving forward for a great team but the good news about Houston is they have an opportunity still high in the draft because they're going to be picking high in the draft this year to maybe get that guy next to Jalen Green uh can you imagine like this team makes so much more sense with Victor Wembanyama you know Vic is the number one, you know, centerpiece. Then, you know, Jalen Green and Jabari Smith, uh, you know, Jabari being the secondary great defensive player, Jalen Green being the real perimeter shot creator that would work really well next to Victor Wembanyama. Jalen Green, or I'm sorry, Victor Wembanyama and Jabari Smith, like being able to, you know, clean up a lot defensively for some of these guards. It would really, really help, I think. They almost need him more than anyone else, I think. Uh, at this point, but I, I think Victor helps a lot of teams, though Sam. He he helps. Yeah, a maybe, lot maybe Charlotte needs him more than anyone else. I'm sorry, <laughs> I said that last week. Maybe Charlotte needs him more than anyone else. But Houston's up there in yeah. terms of all this. In general, I made my feelings known on Houston last week. I think they need to make a coaching change. I think they need to make some substantive moves to change the dynamic there. Uh, including roster moves to bring in vets that can get some easier shots for these guys and bring some accountability. So it's, uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that all plays out moving forward. Yeah. Still like the, the young talent that they have. Again, we just want to see better ways for it to all come together and for accountability and maturity to be kind of streamlined in this process. Yep. Uh, okay. Let's go to number three, Evan Mobley. Uh, I'll give you the floor. I've kind of talked through uh, some of these guys here to start with Caden, um, Caden Jalen. So let's just give you the floor first on 
Evan Mobley. What has been your impression of Evan Mobley this season? Yeah, I, I think with Mobley, uh, the defense was so good out of the gate that it almost set himself up for, I don't want to call it failure, but disappointment in year two and maybe even year three on just how much better he can continue to get. So good at a young age of being a, a savant with angles. He never finds himself out of position against pick and roll. He can do different things on the defensive end of the floor by switching, by dropping, by playing at the level, being a little bit more aggressive, really good with verticality and rarely commits fouls. All of these things he did at USC, he did as a rookie. It's just hard to build on top of that and find ways to get even more impactful in year two. So the defense is is still strong. It's still really good. It's just it's not going to take that huge step forward like people would would hope. So everyone then turns to the offensive end of the floor for Mobley. And I think you hit the nail on the head at the top of this. Any type of offensive development increase in numbers and usage that we were going to see from him kind of disappeared as soon as the Cavaliers acquired a guy like Donovan Mitchell. That's right. Now you have Mitchell and Garland, who are two all-star, literal all-star point guards that need to find ways within an offensive system to share reps and make sure that they don't turn into what the Houston Rockets are, which is a your turn, my turn type of offense. And the best way to do that is to have a kind of two-tiered, two-side pick-and-roll type of concept. And that includes putting Mobley more as a roller than a shot creator. I think there were a lot of people that were hopeful they would see more one-on-one creation, mid-post scoring ability, pull-up jump shooting this year out of Mobley. We haven't quite seen it. I am i don't know if worried is the right word, but I'm a little bit skeptical that the jumper is truly going to come along for him. That's both catch and shoot and kind of off the, uh, off the bounce there in the mid-range area. But Cleveland is maximizing the group that they have. Mobley's offensive development, I think, takes a backseat to finding ways to just continue to be a star in the role that the Cavs need him to be because they are knocking on the door of being a legitimate contender in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I'm not worried about Evan Mobley at all, to be honest, based on what I've seen this year. They have the second best defense in the league, like largely in part or largely because of he and Jared Allen. Like you can make the case that maybe Jared Allen is their most impactful, like maybe he's their most impactful defender just in terms of the way that he's really improved rotationally, being able to shut down people at the rim, being able to completely, you know, clean up for all of that. I will say, I think Evan Mobley is really, really important for them defensively. Uh, Maybe even like a little bit more important due to his switchability and versatility and ability to kind of help and clean up fires all over the court defensively. Uh, He might not be like quite as like above league average in comparison to Jared Allen is like, you know, when comparing them to centers, but that combination of skills with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley works really, really well in conjunction with one another. I think more than anything, they have great chemistry defensively. And I think that the Cavs, uh, when they acquired Donovan Mitchell, pairing him with Darius Garland in the backcourt, that was a concern. Now I think Donovan Mitchell's actually been pretty good defensively this year, actually, which was a concern coming in. He's been really aggressive. He's been really good against screens. He's been really, really good kind of battling on the defensive end and taking that assignment personally, I think, uh, I think that's something that like Colin Sexton played hard, but was just kind of not as strong as Donovan Mitchell is. And it wasn't quite as capable of dealing with bigger players. He's not as long. He's not as strong as Donovan is. Now, 
I think that their defense works really, really well, largely because of Evan Mobley. I think you can probably make a case for Evan Mobley as like a borderline all defense guy this year, but you could have made that case last year. That's how good he was. Uh, I'd have to like really dive in, but put it this way, like Evan Mobley would be on my short list for all defense at the forward position. Like I, I would absolutely, he, he'd be one of the first like 10 or so names to come to mind to me at the forward spot, maybe even sooner than that. So he is doing a great job. It's just that he hasn't taken that leap offensively in large part because of the shooting, because the role requires him at times to space the floor a little bit and it just hasn't happened yet. I will say he's finishing better at the rim. It feels like he's running out in transition really, really well. Uh, I think he's actually taken a very small leap in terms of his touch finishing, like, in that mid-range area, particularly by that, I mean, like, you know, the five to 10 foot range, like being able to just hit that little like push shot from that range. I don't think he's great at it yet, but he was bad at it last year. I don't think he's bad at it anymore, which is really important. Like going from being not able to do something to being able to do it occasionally is a leap for these guys. Like, I think that's an important thing to know. And it just brings that versatility uh, at a higher level, in my opinion. Uh, I think Mobley has been the most important rookie from this entire draft class thus far for his team. Uh, now, long I agree term, with that. Long term, that may not hold up. We may see a guy like Cade Cunningham completely surpass him if he becomes a focal point of something. But Cleveland has won already. They've won already because of Evan Mobley. And if you take him out of their lineup and just replace him with another comparable body at that same type of position, nowhere near the same level of impact. So uh, I'm a huge Mobley fan. I just never see the offensive creation really coming for him, and he doesn't need it. He's okay without it. Well, and here's the thing. The box score numbers are, you know, the scoring is down, right? The blocks are down. I think that, like, the steals might be down. But – the efficiency is up. The rebounding rate is up 3% or the defensive rebounding rate. That is he's getting more offensive rebounds. His usage is down by one and a half percent while that is happening. But I think in general, the indicators are that he has gotten better. Even if the counting numbers don't necessarily say that, it's just that the role is a little bit different this year because of the addition of Donovan Mitchell, and he's not getting those opportunities to create on the ball. So I really like what I've seen from Evan Mobley. I I really, really enjoy uh, watching him play, and I agree with you that he's been purely the best rookie to this point so far in terms of impact on wins and losses. I see that Jonathan Kadig in the comments just noted the guy that I would say is number two, and we'll get to Franz Wagner in a minute here, but let's move on. Let's go to number four. Let's talk Scotty Barnes. Okay. I don't really want to get into the Scotty Wars today. I, I just want to be clear about that. It feels like the Toronto Raptors fan base is so divergent in terms of where they are on him. I feel like you have a very strong take on this. I, I I don't want to get into the Scotty Wars today. And what I will say is this. 
Scotty Barnes, I think, has struggled this season. I have no worries whatsoever about him moving forward. I think he's probably going to end up having an all-star caliber season at some point. I think he's probably going to end up as an all-star. Not this season, obviously, but into the future. I think that the team situation and context around him is not ideal for his skill set. This is a team that does not shoot well from distance. This is a team that utilizes Pascal Siakam in many of the same spaces that uh, Scotty Barnes would be very successful operating within. Uh, I also will note that like, there's a stat that goes around with the Toronto Raptors and with Scotty Barnes, particularly that says Scotty Barnes is the most versatile defender in the NBA right now. He guards, you know, point guards as often as he guards centers and guards everyone in between. I actually don't think that's a great, it's hard. Like it could be good for his development long-term, but I actually don't know that he's good enough at it yet for it to be worthwhile to do right now. I think that it often makes him look worse because he gets put in situations that are not advantageous to him succeeding at this point. And it often results in tape that does not look great all the time. Uh, I think that with Scotty, the context is so important to talk about that. I just want to do it and lay it out there and get it out there. I also think, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he has gotten, he's gotten dinged up a couple of times this mm-hmm. year. Like he missed a couple of games, if I remember correctly, due to like a sprained knee. I think he sprained an ankle, like kind of near the start of the season. I It does not feel like he is 100% right now. Basically anything we've seen from Scotty Barnes this season, I'm not saying I'm throwing it away, but I think that it's really important to establish the context for why, for instance, he has a true shooting percentage that's like 7% or 6% below league average right now and why I think the defense has been a little bit hit or miss at times this year. So with all of that context being laid out, because I've watched a lot of Raptors games now because I'm trying to figure out if they're actually going to sell or if they're going to try and like go for it, what they're going to do. Where are you at on Scotty Barnes? And now that I've laid out all of the potential excuses and all of the potential, everything that I see, when I watch the Raptors that could impact him. Yeah. I am all over the damn place. I don't, I know you're expecting a a stronger take from me in that regard of being really pro or anti, like I'm so torn because I buy into the tools. I buy into how impactful he was last year. And I still hold out hope that he's going to continue to get better just this year. Uh, But there are some concerning aspects of the game that I've seen. I'll start on the defensive end of the floor because that's where you kind of left off with your your opening here, which is pretty eloquently done. He's, I don't want to equate versatility with impact. That's something that I think a lot of times basketball analysts, people who are fans of the game really want to do is they assume that because somebody can guard multiple types of positions, that they're an impactful defender. There's value to having those guys but they have to be impactful in so many different ways. And Scotty is young in learning how to kind of take his lumps when he guards some point guards, when he guards up the lineup, when he is in space on real superstars. I think that's the area that's got him in the most trouble this year is when he guards really, really good offensive players, he can be a little too jumpy. 
He he bites on shot fakes. He comes out of his stance a little bit and gets blown by time to time. Like I think that that's part of Toronto's scheme is to pressure and want him to get into the basketball, but he hasn't been incredibly successful at doing so this year. So that's kind of where I'm at at the defense. I don't know if you see something differently, but I'd like to see him be a little bit more patient on that end of the floor. I would like to see him be a little bit more patient, but like, I, again, I do want to note that I don't think Nick nurse has done a good job with this team and that sometimes he's asked to be like that aggressive, like Romer on the backside and like be all over the map. I don't think he, I don't think that puts him in position to succeed because he often plays very upright. Like that's kind of who Scotty is. He doesn't play with a lot of bend and that can result in him when he has to close out like super far and super long distances get beaten off the bounce and that gets them into rotation and things get all screwed up. Um, The significant flaw for Scotty Barnes at this point remains what it was pre-draft. It's the shooting. Yeah. He shot 29% outside of 10 feet this year, yep. despite the fact that he's taken, I want to say like 45% of his volume uh, outside of 10 feet. That, that's why the numbers are so bad in terms of efficiency right now. Uh, he needs to shoot. That, that's kind of what it comes down to for Scotty. Like to be the on-ball creator that he shows so much potential to be. And I, I think that like, it's worth noting like games like tonight against Portland. Like I watched a pretty substantial amount of that game because I knew we were going to wade into the fucking Scotty Barnes wars. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to be as up to date as possible. Like he was so aggressive in the first half tonight and like was getting downhill, getting to the brim. Like he has that capability. I think by the time he's like 25, his shoulders are going to fill out. His lower half yeah. is going to fill out. It's going to be like impossible to stop him when he like takes that deceleration step. Like you watch OG Ananobi, for instance. Like OG is what five years, four years older than Scotty Barnes, something like that. And even someone like him, who I think entered with less skill level than Scotty Barnes did, he's just so physically strong now that when he takes that deceleration step and bumps you, guys go backward. Guys go backward when Scotty Barnes hits them now. That's going to happen even more when he's 25 years old. I, I am. In terms of Scotty Barnes being an all-star long-term, like top 25 player in the league, I'm not worried based on what we've seen this year. Um, I do think he has struggled and been relatively unsuccessful because he hasn't been great defensively and has been very inefficient as a scorer, but he shows so many flashes. He shows so many positive things that, it's hard not to be excited about him as a player long-term. So it's a, it's complicated. Like what's happening in Toronto right now in general is very complicated, but I think that like the guy that it's impacting as much as anything is Scotty Barnes. And while I have not loved what I've seen, I think it's worth discussing the context of the entire thing. Yeah and not just like blanket being like, this is, this is bad, you know? And it's the curse of versatility sometimes, Sam, is when you're good at a lot of different things or you have the ability to slide into different slots in the lineup. Sometimes if your team is struggling, needs a jump, you're the guy that makes that sacrifice, that makes that move. And 
in late game situations, you, you mentioned earlier, Pascal Siakam does a lot of the similar things or operates in similar areas to where ideal Scotty does. And that because Siakam is so good, it blocks some of those developmental reps for a guy like Barnes. So when both of them need to be on the floor late in the game, and I just wrote about this earlier this weekend, the Raptors will turn Scotty Barnes into a high pick and roll screener. And he's already matched pretty much his, his pick and roll attempts as the role man this year, as he did his entire rookie season. I, I actually really like that role. I for love him. it. I think he's it, done really, really well with it. And by the way, if you notice, like Scotty tends, this is the opposite of what happened tonight, but Scotty, it feels like over the last little while has tended to struggle in the first half and then come on in the second half. And I feel like they utilize him more like that in the second half than they yes. do in the first half because they kind of let him be on ball a little bit more in the first half and like bring the ball to the court and make passes and make plays for his teammates. And he's great at like, he's really good at that for someone who's six foot nine with all sorts of length and can get out and transition and lead the break. Like I, I don't, I don't want to spend this time like talking poorly about someone that has not played well, because I think that like there are so many skills and talents that are there. Yep. Yep. But I think my overall point there, Sam, is that because he's versatile, because he can play with the ball in his hands or is big enough and, and long enough to be a screen and roll type of finisher where Fred Van Vliet can hit him with a pocket pass and he can get from the elbow to the basket without taking a bounce that now all of a sudden it's hard to peg what direction his development is going to go in because, and he's not yeah. getting all of those reps with the ball in his hands. He's the one that's making those sacrifices. It tends to be the curse of versatility sometimes. So are we still in on Scotty Barnes long-term? Absolutely. I really am. Uh, but I don't know what comes next in terms of additions and layers to his game. If the jump shot isn't the first thing to come around. Yeah, like the jumper, for him to reach a ceiling, the jumper has to come around in some respect because he's really had like a half season of solid shooting at the first half of last season. And then if you look from like halfway point on last year, it was not great. And then this year, it hasn't been great either. He has to shoot it. No questions there. But there are so many other positive skills that I just want to like acknowledge and talk about because he is like a really interesting player uh, and someone that I think is going to, also be dependent upon the direction the Raptors choose moving forward because they have real decisions to make at the trade deadline here. Do they keep Fred Van Vliet? You know, does Fred Van Vliet sign an extension? Uh, what do they do with OG and Anobi, who seems to be the most popular person at the deadline? Pascal Siakam is extension eligible this year. What do they do with him uh, at the end of this year? I believe I'm sorry. So there are just so many things. There are so many different factors with the Raptors that have to be considered and all of those decisions are going to have a tremendous impact on Scotty Barnes's development moving forward. So I'll be interested to see what they do. Let's take a quick commercial break on that note and end our Scotty Wars discussion. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location 
from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. We're going to talk about the Orlando Magic now. And this is where I'm going to cheat a little bit. Just a little bit in terms of our draft uh, order profile here. Because Jalen Suggs is next, but Franz Wagner is eight. And I want to talk about them kind of together because it'll make an easier YouTube clip to clip, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I want to start with Franz because I think Franz has been the second best rookie in this class behind Evan Mobley. And I think you can honestly make the case that he has been better than Evan in a lot of respects. Franz Wagner is averaging 20 points, four rebounds, 3.5 assists, shooting 48.5% from the field, 35.1 from three, 86.3 from the line. He has almost doubled his free throw rate from year one to year two. Uh, he has increased his three-point volume from year one to year two. He has a 59.1 true shooting percentage. His assist percentage has increased. Overall, he has been an incredibly impactful offensive player to this point of his career as a six foot ten creator that can do a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Just talented guy and never seems to force it which is a rare skill for a young guy to have the ability to score as much as he does without having a lot of games where you say ah france was france was hunting that game he was really trying to force those down the stretch oh boy that what is he doing trying to trying to take those step back jumpers like 
everything for him <laughs> is within the flow of offense. It makes yeah. sense. He's so, so good at knowing pre-catch when to shoot it, when to move it, or when to drive and get downhill. That's a feel that not a, not really can be taught to a bunch of players. Like it, You just know when you're open and where you should go with the basketball before you catch it. And because of that, and his length and his good handle, particularly going to his right, he's so, so silky at putting pressure on the rim. And I yeah. think that's why his, his two-point field goal percentage is as high as it is. Not, he's added some step backs, some mid-range pull-ups to his game this year that we didn't see too, too much as a rookie. But it's the ability to consistently create high-quality shots at the rim for himself. And he does that because he knows where to go with the basketball every single time he catches it. I'm just I'm blown away with the feel that a guy like Wagner has. Well, it's just really, really hard to overemphasize how hard it is to find guys that are six foot yeah. nine to six foot ten who can just do the sheer quantity of things that he can do he can run ball screens he can go out like in transition grab and go and lead the break he can you know play in spot up situations pump fake drive make a live dribble pass or finish at the rim he can just knock down shots at a 35 percent three-point level clip uh he makes passes on the move he's a really good cutter uh it's just that there's a lot there that is super valuable and that versatility of skill set is something that I think goes underrated almost in this uh, heliocentric time where so many players are, you know, just so phenomenal taking a ball screen and dominating, right. Or being out in isolation, making plays and dominating, having someone like Franz Wagner. I mean, God, this is a guy it's been said enough, but like, can you imagine him with the Golden State Warriors? Oh, like, can you yeah. imagine how good that would be? Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine. God. Just the way he processes the game, the way he thinks through Perfect. it. He, well, he makes Orlando so much better as it is just by that versatility of thinking through things and knowing where to be processing the game. He's so, so skilled. Yep. And he's... To me, like Paulo is the most important player there mm-hmm. because Paulo is the guy that can be the number one option as a creator. But Franz is like unequivocally number two. Yeah. Uh, like, sorry, Jalen Suggs, I still have a lot of stock in you, probably more than most do. But Franz's ability to play so many different roles on the ball, off the ball, it's so, so valuable to a team's operation that uh, I am an enormous fan of what I've seen so far. He's been great, and he's the type of player because he's tall, he's skilled with the ball in his hands, he's got a good feel, and he can shoot it. He's going to continually find a way to score 18 to 25 points a game no matter what style of play the Magic have, who they have on their roster. Like He's just always going to be that Mr. Dependable kind of guy. Well, let's talk about that because we're talking about him as if he is like an off-ball, great complimentary piece, uh, Mr. Dependable type. I think his ceiling is like way higher than that. It, it can be, like, yeah. Yep. I think his ceiling is like, if he's like a 26 point per game scorer, who's like 26, six and six at some point, and is like a surefire all-star, that would not surprise me at all based on what we've seen. Like he is going to continue to get stronger and continue to be able to take advantage of mismatches at a really high level uh, on the ball as a creator, given all of the ball skills he already has. I don't know, man. Like, 
I think he's often talked about as like the clear number two option next to Paulo. He probably is that, but like, if you told me he's as good as Paulo at some point, like I would buy that. He's gotten better every single time we've seen him. I think he's like basically Paulo's age too. Like, or no, he might be a year older. Yeah, he's still, a little older. He but played he's... the two years in college. Yeah, right. he's a year older. But like, nonetheless, he's he's a stud, man. He's he's a stud. He is as important to the Orlando Magic as anybody uh, that we've talked about thus far is their team, maybe with the slight exception of Mobley, just because of the defensive yeah. infrastructure that is needed. Where are you at on Franz's defense? Smart, good off-ball helper. I do think he gets leveraged sometimes by driving players. And I will be interested to see how it looks three years down the road when he gets stronger. Yeah, I'm curious to see what direction from a roster building standpoint the Magic go. If they lean into being super long across the board at different positions, if that's something that either helps or hinders Franz, like playing him more at the two, so to speak or just having super, super long guys on the floor that can help on that backside and, and I, always I be there to recover. For what yeah. it's worth. Yeah. I, I would I would look to go – I would look to be as versatile as possible. Like maybe there are lineups where he can play the two. But I like the idea even of like them being able to go at times Paulo at the five, Franz at the four, and then right. perimeter players out there. Uh, I like the idea of them being able to go Franz at the three, Paulo at the four with another big – I guess that you could go Franz at the two at times and then like who the hell knows what Jonathan Isaac is going to look like when he gets back. Like if you could play Franz Isaac, given Isaac's versatility defensively with Paulo and Wendell Carter, like that's interesting to me as well on some level. I don't know if there's enough playmaking out there for that. Like Paulo and Franz are great, but like, I don't know if you can separate enough. You really need Jalen Suggs, I think, to hit a super high level as a separator to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And like transition, like he's a great transition defender as it is, but I worry about like what their transition defense would look like that big. Um, Really, really interesting player. Like, I I think he's, for instance, like Gregory Castillo in the YouTube comments just said, like, interested to see if Franz plays a Jalen Brown role next to Paulo or more of like a Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon role. I think he's way, way closer to Jalen Brown, like way, way closer to Jalen Brown than those other guys. Yep, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, Okay, let's talk about Jalen Suggs, my beloved Jalen Suggs, who I still have a lot of stock in. I love him defensively. Let's let's say that at the top. He is phenomenal on defense. Uh, The the road to him being a successful NBA player is not as far as people think because the defense is so good, I think. Like, it, it does not take much for him to get there. I will also say that, like, it feels like he's finishing way better at the rim this year, which is very helpful. But the shooting has just been a total non-starter, and that's why it's like completely tanked his offensive value at this point. I keep going back to the game he had earlier in the year against Golden State, where he was so disruptive, and he caught a little bit of fire on the offensive end of the floor. Like That's the Jalen Suggs that we need to see. I think he's got to live in transition, where if the yep. Magic have a reliable defense behind him, and he's obviously a huge part of that because he can pressure the basketball and do a lot of things in locking down other star guards. But the more that transition opportunities can be created for him, the more palatable his offense becomes because I think he's a he's a momentum type of player. 
And what we've seen thus far, whether it's last year and just the stop-start nature due to injury or this year and trying to find his way as more of a third cog in the offense, is that some guys are really good shooters after they take the first one because now they know how to compensate. With their, okay, I was a little long the first time. I, I got to change my mechanics this way. Or it, it takes a little bit of rhythm in order for them to find their stroke. And Suggs, as a third or even fourth option offensively, isn't afforded that type of, of leash and rhythm to, to figure it out. So does he have to do a lot of work in that regard? Yes. He's got to put in the time with his jump shot to overhauling it, particularly off the bounce. But if he can see the ball go in and transition, if he can run, run the floor and get some easy ones going, I think the rest of his offense opens up as a result. So the symbiotic relationship between O and D is really valuable. I think what Suggs brings to the table as a point of attack defender is already so vital for this Orlando Magic team. Yeah. But it is going to come down to the shooting, Sam. Yeah, I will say I, I think I probably misevaluated how ready he was to play in ball screens, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that he had a little bit more feel yeah. than he does. But the shoot, it comes down to the shooting. Like if he can shoot off of pull ups so that people don't have to go way under the, or don't choose to go way under the screens things become so much easier for Orlando's offense and for Jalen Suggs. It opens up the court at a drastically different level. If he shoots, the ceiling is very high still, I think, but I just haven't seen much indication that he's going to shoot. So it's hard. Like it's not going to take much for him to be like a borderline starting quality point guard or like even like, you know, the 20th best point guard in the league, like maybe Markel Fultz is like, that's actually like kind of probably the trajectory that this ends up going because Fultz has been really, really valuable for Orlando in the minutes he's played. But if he can shoot it, things really change for him in a hurry and the ceiling gets way higher. Um, We'll see. I'm, I'm not selling much, Jalen Suggs value, but like, he's very clearly not as good as I thought he was pre-draft. Like I had him, I think at number two, I, I was just not like, I think that he, Evan, I'd take Evan Mobley. I'd take Scotty Barnes. I'd take Franz Wagner. I'd take a lot of guys that I had lower than uh, Jalen Suggs at this point. Yep. Okay. Let's move now to Josh Giddy, who went number six in this class. Josh Giddy in the middle of a fascinating run recently that, I think like rightfully maybe has changed some people's perspective of him. Like he's been really, really, really good basically since Christmas. Like if you look at the numbers over his last seven games, he's averaging 18, seven and five while shooting 52, 45 and has made like all of the few free throws that he takes. I kind of wonder like, I mean, if he's shoot, if he's really shooting the ball, things totally change for him. Like, though, with how intelligent he is, I think he's one of the five or six smartest players in the NBA, just straight up. The way he sees the court is unlike anything, not unlike anything, but like it is rare to see a player that is 20 years old who sees the court, who sees angles, who picks up on just the little observant things that Josh Giddy seems to see on the court. If he shoots it, he has real all-star upside is where I'm at. Uh, yeah. Like there, there's a lot here to be excited about. If I was an Oklahoma city thunder fan, he's been really aggressive, Sam, and not yes. just aggressive in terms of hunting his own shot, but like 
physical, really going into guys a little bit, using his size and his length to create. He's, he's strong, man. He's really strong. Really strong. And we're seeing how impactful it can be to have another really good handler next to a 30 point per game score and a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander, that the extra attention that's going to go on SGA means that now you have essentially four on four and a little bit more space to operate if you're a guy like Giddy. And he's learning yeah. how to take advantage of something like that, where I think coming into the league and, and you hit on his high IQ and feel definitely there, but it was much more a ball screen type of, okay, you put me in a high pick and roll and I can show you exactly how to make the right play nine times out of 10. I think he's yeah. had to learn to adjust to being more of the secondary playmaker. And as a result, it's harder for him to know when to be aggressive, when to pick his spots, when to go and be a scorer. He's leaning into that scoring a little bit more over this recent run that he's been on. Yes, he's knocking down shots, but I think he's finally figured out how to coexist next to SGA in a way that completely changes things for the Thunder. The other thing that, well, A, let's just talk about the passing. Unbelievable passer. Like the touch that he shows on passing. It's the passes are unbelievable. The angles he's, he sees angles and like creases and openings that I can't even imagine like seeing as being there. It's unbelievable watching him just think through the game at a high level uh, while he's like live processing things while dribbling and like passing and on the move and everything. Well, well, and he's, and he's tall enough to be able to make any type of pass over the top of the defense. I think that's what unlocks it for him is that he can hit anybody that's a corner spot up shooter because he is tall enough to just whip it over the top of the defense with those hook passes. And that's where I want to go next. Having Josh Giddy and Shea Gilgis Alexander potentially as your point guard and shooting guard moving forward for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and then Jalen Williams also as your three man moving forward, it gives you so much length and athleticism out there defensively that even with Giddy's deficiencies to this point, I don't think he's been great defensively. I think he's gotten better in year two, uh, but it's more because he was just very not good last year. Uh, he just wasn't strong enough to hold up. Now he's strong enough to hold up. I really, really love the amount of length that they can put out on the court. They can go like six eight, six six, you know, with a seven foot wingspan, six six with a seven two wingspan. Chet Holmgren maybe long term, who's seven one with a seven six wingspan, is an elite rim protector, shot blocker, everything. And then find your four man, whoever you want. You could have Josh Giddy guard fours maybe and then play another point guard. Yeah. Like you could do so many different things yeah. that like it's that versatility of skill set that having Josh Giddy and Shea Gilgis Alexander and to a lesser extent Jalen Williams gives Oklahoma City moving forward from a roster building perspective and a flexibility and lineup versatility perspective. This team is very dangerous long-term. Yep. Like th this is the team that I look at, especially with the Shea leap that's happened this year and being as big of a fan as I am of Chet. Also knowing that they're probably going to get another top six or seven player this year, top eight, maybe in the draft. This is the team I look at that is doing it right in terms of rebuilding. Um, 
they're doing kind of, I mentioned this on uh, the athletic NBA show with the slam and jam boys. Uh, shout out Andrew Schleck. Shout out Al Spears. What up, Schleck? We love you guys. But I kind of mentioned this, like they're doing something very similar to what Toronto wanted to yes. do with building, you know, plus positional size, plus positional athleticism in the case of Toronto, plus positional length. Except with Oklahoma City, they're doing it as a combo of plus positional size with skill level as opposed to Toronto doing it with like, we can teach shooting, we can teach skill level, everything like that. Oklahoma City is getting guys that process the game at a super high level that also have positional size and length that might not be quite as good defensively as the guys that Toronto takes early on in their careers and thinking that they might be able to fix them defensively more so than fix the processing and skill level. I very much prefer the Oklahoma city model of the way that they're building as opposed to the Toronto model. Um, I know the Toronto's had more success to this point, obviously, but I really, really buy what Oklahoma city is doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on giddy here, Sam is the defensive end of the floor in that conversation is really thinking about the versatility of different guys and and ways you can guard with the length that they have one through three. If I'm going into a playoff series and I'm coaching the Oklahoma City Thunder, I'm almost stealing from the playbook of what the Washington Wizards would do a few years ago, where they would have Kelly Oubre defend more at the point of attack and push John Wall to an off ball, even guarding up some twos or threes in the lineup just because he was strong enough to do so. I do the exact same thing here in Oklahoma City. I'd put Jalen Williams at the point of attack to navigate those screens on defense, use his length to contest from behind, and just try to dare somebody to put their three on Josh Giddy in the low post and say, you want to try to go and move this strong-bodied six-foot-eight dude? Go for it. Like I, I think yeah. that's what Oklahoma City should do. But we're a year or two away from that. Okay, let's go to number seven, Jonathan Kaminga. Jonathan Kaminga. The numbers aren't great from a you know season-long perspective, but if you look over the last 16 games, he's missed the last three that Golden State has played due to a little foot injury that he picked up. But if you look at the last 16 games he's played, 22 minutes a night, averaging 10 points, four rebounds, two and a half assists versus only 1.6 turnovers, which is a big number for him, having that two-to-one assist turnover ratio, 53% from the field, not shooting well from the line or from three, but it feels like they're utilizing him at a really high level as a cutter, as a playmaker in transition. Moreover though, man, has he picked it up on defense? Yes. He has been fantastic on defense for golden state over the course of these last like month and a half, this last month and a half or so. Playing for the warriors will humble you because you've got to fit so precisely into their ecosystem in order to get the most out of the stars that they have. Steph Curry, always moving without the basketball in his hand. Klay Thompson, another moving shooter around him. Draymond Green, one of the highest processors in the game of basketball who operates in a very unique way because he doesn't shoot or score the ball very often. Kevon Looney, always knowing how to set screens like he has learned and adapted to that golden state system from where he came into the league as because he does all of the little things all of the dirty work and has bought into just being that guy and i think we're starting to see kaminga while he plays a a separate position from a guy like looney 
start to figure out that that's the pathway to consistent minutes for him. It's not being a high level scorer. It's not understanding when he comes into the game to get opportunities to get downhill and plow guys over to get to the rim. It's I'm going to come in here. I'm going to defend my ass off and I'm going to look for opportunities to cut back door, to clean up with second chance points, to play in transition. That's where my points are going to come in. But in order to keep my, my spot in the rotation, I got to be the best defender out here. And he's buying into that finally. Yeah. I mean, golden state was maybe the best place for him to go in terms of, yeah, there was going to be like a top five recruit in the class who really had a lot to work on skill wise golden state just due to how good they are. will give him that time as long as he's willing to work off the court to improve skill level wise, while also utilizing him to a very high level at the things he's already good at. Now he struggled at that it, through the first part of this year, like even like the right. first quarter of this year. Um, last year at times he showed flashes, but again, it was just like little flashes here and there. These last 16 games, I think are an ideal use of him while he's still 20 years old in figuring out what his ceiling can be. I love it. I love everything I've seen from Kaminga over the last six weeks. It's in a much more limited sample, obviously. Like we're not talking about him on the level of a, you know, Scotty Barnes of an Evan Mobley of a Franz Wagner and a Cade Cunningham in terms of what they've accomplished so far. But I love that Jonathan Kaminga has taken that next step in toward, in terms of being a real rotation player on a great team Hopefully we think golden state will be a great team at some point. They're not great right now. Um, they've improved recently though. Uh, we think that this will be a great team and he will play a critical role for them in the playoffs. I think as that havoc inducer havoc creator on both ends of the court uh, and where he goes from there is up to him. Like he has all the athleticism, the explosiveness, the length, uh, the potential as a shot creator. We know that that hasn't borne itself out yet all the time. There's just a lot that he's capable of that we're starting to see now. We knew he was going to be a project coming in because of the lack of shooting and because of honestly, like kind of some processing things, right? Like it was just going to take some time for him as a processor to get things together. Uh, just because he missed that last year of high school, did not play college, went straight to the G League. The G League can be a bit of a mishmash of, you know, selfish play and everything like that. Um, The fact that he is now in year two, halfway through it, and has become a rotation player for a team that just won the title last year is a great sign for Jonathan Kaminga. And I think that the Warriors should be very happy with where he is right now. I've got to give him a round of applause, Sam, because he's, is he 21 yet or is he still 20? Still 20. So I think back to what how mature I was when I was 20 years old before I could legally drink and, and all of these different things, like just trying to think about who I was at that point in time. There is no way in hell I would have had the maturity to come into a situation. I've been a five-star recruit, think of myself as a, a scoring hub in the NBA because of the role that I played with the G League Ignite. And within a year and a half, completely buy into the role that he has to make the Warriors better. I, I think that there's been a real maturity 
uh, and, and professionalism about the way that he's handled this process to just maximize who we can be on the floor that doesn't get talked about enough for young players in the league. So my, my hat's off to, to Kaminga for that. All right, let's go to Davion Mitchell at number nine now. Yeah, let's get some Davion Davion talk. Really interesting season. So let's just note, like, the defense at the point of attack has been absolutely stellar. Uh, there's nothing you can complain about there. He is so tough. He annoys the shit out of you for as many feet as Sacramento wants him to. Uh, really, really high-level point of attack defender. I'm a little bit worried about the offense. Are you? Yeah, I'm confused by the offense, but I, I want to hear your take on it first. Yeah. So look, obviously kind of a different situation now, right? Where De'Aaron Fox has really strongly taken the lead there and has been awesome. He's been like a, you know, all NBA caliber player to this point in the season. And that two-man game with him and Sabonis tends to be the driving force behind a lot of what they do well. Uh, if you look at like the lineups that Davion Mitchell tends to play in, uh, he does play a lot with Sabonis and plays a lot with like you know Kevin Herter and Harrison Barnes and those guys. Like that's by far like his most common lineup is basically like with the starters, right? So far this season, um, other than. De'Aaron Fox, I I would have expected, given that, that there would be more of a leap in terms of his playmaking, in terms of his um, passing and decision-making, and in terms of his ability to drive offense a little bit more, even though they do utilize Kevin Herter a little bit more in those situations uh, offensively. Well, and it's funny, I've... I expected that leap to come just because of how hard and how well he played down the stretch run last season. Like when he moved into the starting lineup and and played heavy minutes, got in front of me here, his final 14 games as a rookie, he was averaging 18 points and eight assists a game, shooting 46% from the field, 34% from three. Like it it felt like there was a legitimate offensive, uh, you know, creator that was blossoming in his midst to maybe not be, you know, a, a top tier option on an NBA team, but to at least be able to run a second unit at a really competent type of way. And I don't think we've seen that on the offensive end of the floor this year, but his defense is so damn consistent that he's still going to find ways to impact the Kings for the better. Well, well and, it, and it's weird because like, he doesn't really run a lot of like pure second units. Right. You know what I like? Right. He plays a lot with like, Kevin Herter, Harrison Barnes, Demonis Sabonis, like almost all of his most common lineups this year feature Sabonis and Barnes. So like, I don't know. It's weird. Watching Davion Mitchell is weird this year. Uh, He's a great backup guard. Like he's exactly what they need in terms of like change of pace off the bench. Let's go. Let's aggressively defend the shit out of these guys uh, on the defensive end of the court. But yeah, kind of a weird year for him. he, he might just be like a great backup, but when you have De'Aaron Fox, like, you know, that might be all you need. And, huh. and this team's really good. So, like, they also need his defense at times, which is really valuable. Like, the Sacramento team is a mess defensively. Yeah. So, 
it does help. And it's it's the challenge of having a guy like Mitchell, who's not the most positionally versatile, but is really impactful defensively when he's on the floor on a team that doesn't have a lot of perimeter impact defenders. So the question becomes, you know, if you're going against a a really good guard, do you have Mitchell play more with those starting lineups and against those high quality scorers, thus not allowing him to get the most out of his offensive game because he's not running a traditional second unit? Or do you just say, go out there and cause havoc against whatever team's backup guard and hopefully live in transition? So it's a, it's a really difficult push-pull as a coaching staff for the Kings to try to figure out the answer to. And thus far, because all five of the the Kings players in their starting unit have been so impactful together. It's hard to know who to replace when you would put Mitchell in the lineup. I will also say this. Um, it does seem to be the case that the junior year slash fourth year of Davion Mitchell at Baylor was a clear outlier as a shooter. Oh yeah. Uh, when he shot like 48%. I like, I, I really like the mechanical improvements. Like I thought he'd be like a 38% NBA three point shooter, maybe like 36. He's not that right now. Like he's a 32% three point shooter, which is difficult to make work as a role player, which is essentially the role he's playing uh, on this team. So I don't really love what I've seen offensively from Mitchell to this point, but the defense is like valuable enough at the point of attack to where it's going to give him a lot of time to figure out the offense. And he's a great worker. I like to think he'll figure it out. Yep. Okay. Look, Zaire Williams is 10. Zaire Williams played like probably 200 minutes this year. I would venture a lot of those are low usage minutes. He had a really good game a couple nights ago, actually. Um, where he had like 15 points and you could really see the vision for him. I think that he looked good defensively at times last year at the point of attack. I'm very, very interested in him long-term. I think like he's a level above the guys like Jake LaRavia, John Conchar, David Roddy, in terms of like long-term value to the Memphis Grizzlies for sure. Uh, I would even say, frankly, he's probably like a little bit above Brandon Clark for me in terms of like long-term value for the Grizzlies because of what his ceiling could be long-term and how important that positional value could be for them. I just don't know that I want to talk about him much because he's played like 200 minutes this year. Yeah. Do we take this opportunity to stick it with another Grizzlies second year player though? I think we should. Yeah. I said after 10, we're going to fly all over the map. Let's do it. Uh, And we should talk about Santi Aldama. Uh, Santi Aldama is a straight up like starting quality player for the Memphis Grizzlies right now. Started 16 games this season, shooting 47% from the field, 36% from three, 73% from the line, nine points, five rebounds, a block, almost a steal per game, plus true shooting percentage. Like for someone in a low usage role, he's been super efficient and super effective. He has real versatility in terms of being able to handle the ball, in terms of being able to run dribble handoffs, in terms just everything that they're asking of him. He has it. He spaces the floor a little bit for John Morant as a driver. Looks like a tremendous four-five kind of hybrid uh, that could work really, really well. Jaron Jackson long term for them. 
allows them to play five out in a really substantial way. I will say, uh, I love everything about it. I loved Santi. I had Santi as a first round guy pre-draft. I think I was the only one uh, in the public sphere. And I love it. I'm here for it. Let's go. He's been, he's been awesome, Sam. Uh, he's been awesome. I had the opportunity, uh, you know, cause he's, he went to college at Loyola right down the road from where I live right now. Uh, got to see him at a workout last year, came over to our gym at boys Latin and, and got a workout and was talking to him a lot afterwards. But the, the biggest thing that I took away was how cleanly he shot the ball and yeah, do NBA players in, you know, one on O settings all tend to shoot the ball really well. Yeah, they do. But the consistency of his mechanics, the form that he was working on, just the feel that he was going through in some of his workouts, like you knew there was going to be a competent floor spacer coming. It's been really nice to see that from him because I think that's what keeps him on the floor. He's so toolsy on the defensive end. He's really, really smart with the basketball. You mentioned dribble handoffs or handling in transition. Like The skill level that he has at his size is pretty remarkable. But when you're playing for the Memphis Grizzlies and John Morant is there and Desmond Bain has been as good as he has in, in, this season, yep. Steven Adams is your traditional screen and roll type of big. I got to give Steven credit. He's been pretty good as a passer this year atop the key too. But you need to, if you're going to be a, a role player around them, you need to be able to make shots. And I, I think that that's where Santi has put himself in a better position to be a staple on this team and a guy that backs up Jaron Jackson Jr. for the long term because you know he's going to come in, he's going to be a competent floor spacer and be really, really active on the defensive end. Yeah, uh, I, I really like what I've seen from Santi yeah. this year. I think he looks like a potential starter down the road uh, for the Memphis Grizzlies. I just He's also like a smart positional defender. Like, yeah. look, there are limitations in terms of his like rim protection right now and everything, but... I don't know. Like he might not end up being the liability that people thought he might be pre-draft. He's, he's quicker and in across that's across the board. He looks quicker than he did when he was in college and that's decision-making yeah. attacking closeouts, ground coverage on the defensive end of the floor, sliding with guys one-on-one. I remember he gave Julius Randall some fits earlier this year when he played the Knicks, like he can do some things in space. He's just, he's getting a lot better really quickly. Okay, let's go to the Pelicans guys now. Yeah. Trey Murphy and Herb Jones. Uh, If you had to pick one moving forward, who would you take? Trey Murphy. Wouldn't even think twice about it. I agree with you. And I love Herb Jones. I love Herb Jones pre-draft. Another guy that I had in the first round that other people didn't believe in. Shout out Herb Jones. (laughs) But man, Trey Murphy's a stud. Like, Trey Murphy might end up being like one of the six best players in this draft. He's he's Mr. Reliable as a role player because of the way he shoots the basketball and his length is so disruptive on the defensive end of the floor. It's not the same level of guard you one through five, lock you down at the point of attack in the way that Herb is, but his length tends to be really bothersome in passing lanes. It allows him to close out to guys and you can see the way that like the last minute they alter their shot because Murphy's like windmill type of arms are coming towards a, a spot up shooter. He's done a little bit more off the bounce than I ever expected him to at the pro level. And and I've been pleased with the small flashes that we've seen there, but just knocking down shots is what the Pelicans need next to Zion Williamson. And it's where Herb has regressed a little bit this year. 
Murphy is Mr. Consistent on that end of the floor. To me, that's why his, his ceiling is so much higher. Trey Murphy is a legit 40 plus percent three point yeah. shooter. He's shooting 41% on 5.5 three point attempts per game. At Virginia in that last year, he shot 43% on a bunch of attempts per game. Uh, I believe it was something like five to six again. Uh, he shot 93% from the line uh, that last year at uh, Virginia. He's shooting 92% from the line. I'm glad you brought up the fact that like he's getting to the foul line. Uh, he's getting to the foul line more than Josh Giddy, like basically right now. And given how much Giddy handles the ball, you would never really think that given like what their roles are, right? Like the Pelicans have all these dudes that can handle the ball. They have, uh, you know, CJ McCollum, Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram has been in and out of the lineup this year, but like another guy, right? Trey Murphy's like improvement has been drastic. Uh, he is going to be one of the best floor spacers point blank in the NBA. And I'm glad you brought up the defense because that's the thing that I always loved about him. His feet are really good for someone who is six foot 10. He slides exceptionally well. He gets like good bend. Like it's one of those things where I think that like he grew up playing with good bend because he was shorter. Like for people who don't know, Trey Murphy was like six foot three or so, uh, maybe a little bit tall, maybe a little bit shorter than that actually up until basically like the last year and a half of high school. And then he shot up and like is now six foot 10 or whatever. So he's a late bloomer physically. And I think that like he brings some of those things that like you get taught when you're a more normal sized player to being six foot 10 now, which is very helpful uh, to your development. So he moves super well on defense. He slides, he uses his length really, really well and help. I love Trey. I I think that he is like one of the great, great young role players in today's NBA. It's just another example, Sam, of those guys who grow up as guards, hit that growth spurt and turn into really good player. Like this is the hill I always die on, whether it's him, whether it's Jalen Williams for the thunder, like these guys who hit these late growth spurts. Give me, give me the name. Give me the one you want to shout out today. Now you go for it. It's Baba Miller, your guy. Baba Miller. Bubba Miller's a former is a growth spurt former guard. Yep. And so all of these guys that continue to to get better, uh, as well as get longer and taller and bigger, they just they don't seem to miss very often when they become pros. Let's go to Herb Jones now. Herb Jones is still unbelievable defensively. <laughs> He's so good on defense. <laughs> yeah. It's just the shooting. Like yeah. teams don't guard him. Like let's just be real about it. Like teams think he's a non-threat as a shooter, and that uh, was a problem at times for them in the playoffs last year. And it's a problem moving forward for Herb Jones to hit his utmost potential. Now he's a smart cutter; he can, you know, bring the ball up in transition and make plays there. He's a phenomenal on-ball defender. He is a hyper-intelligent off-ball defender. But man shooting's got to come for him to be a good role player and teams just don't think he can shoot. And that's more important than the fact that he can't shoot. Like teams know that he can't shoot now. Yeah. We're, we're talking about two different games between the regular season and the playoffs in the postseason, opponents are very willing to sag off guys and dare them to shoot and pick apart your biggest weakness possession after possession after possession. I just, I have a hard time not seeing this turn into an Andre Robertson type of situation 
where he gets jettisoned to the corner and almost ignored, or you can hide the the worst defensive player on him in a series, and it prevents the Pelicans from being able to pick apart mismatches in the way that the other four guys on the floor would like to. Um, still an impactful role player, but I think it's hard to justify having him on the floor for closing lineups against a lot of different teams, and and that's the difference between him and Murphy. Because of Murphy's shooting, his length, his defense, he can be on the floor in those moments. I don't know if Herb can. Yeah. Um, also, right now, the Houston Rockets have 32 points in the second half with 40 seconds left. I don't know, man. That, that might be it. That might be it for Steven Silas. I don't know. That's not me reporting that. That's just like me totally speculating. I have no idea. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I want to be very clear about that, but yeah, like the aggregation police are on you right now, Sam. Yeah. Oh boy. That's a, that's, that's not a good look. Um, okay. Let's move to Quentin Grimes. Yes. Next. Thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on Quentin Grimes here? As he has, uh, continued to look very, very impactful, uh, over the course of this little Knicks run that they're on, uh, over the last really like month, month and a half. Yeah. So I think we're out now that we're outside of the top 10, we've kind of moved past the point where we're going to find high level scoring in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, you, we could make the argument about cam Thomas if we really wanted to, but, uh, you know, the, I might the, disagree with Quentin. This is the thing of, of all of the role players and the guys that we have left on the board. I think Quentin is the one who just knows how to play basketball and is going to yep. just kind of backflip into like 14 points a game. If he's playing 30 minutes a night, because he drills open jumpers He's competent in the open floor at handling. He does not make a ton of mistakes. He can come off of a handoff in a zoom action or coming out of the corner and make the right decision with it. And he competes his ass off on the defensive end of the floor. Like if we're talking about a guy who came out of Houston and played for Kelvin Sampson, you know, you're going to get one tough dude. And he's brought that to the Knicks and their starting lineup and, and really been a huge key for them. This is one where I was just dumb pre-draft. Like, <laughs> I knew that he could defend at a really high level. Like, that was the thing I loved. Yeah. And I felt, like, pretty good about the shooting. And I think I still ranked him at, like, 38 or something. Hmm. And it's just like, what in the world am I doing? Like, thinking back, it's just like, why did I have him that low? I don't know why I had him that low. Like, the the tools all make sense here for him to continue to grow on top of it. Different kind of trajectory, given that he was a five-star guy that like, you know, was always six foot four, but he has some of the attributes that you always talk about in terms of being a brought up and developed as a point guard, right? For people who don't know the Quentin Grimes story, like Quentin Grimes was a five-star like point guard prospect out of Texas was considered a potential lottery pick one and done. I had him as like the best guard in that class that year coming into the year. I loved him. And from there, it didn't work the first year at Kansas. He did he sit out? I don't think he sat out a year. I think he played at Houston the next year and was pretty good. And then everything clicked and the light bulb came on for him as 
a third year player at Houston and he was awesome. He won the AAC player of the year. I don't remember if he was an all American or not, but like had a case as an all American certainly. And just was like phenomenal. Killed the pre-draft process as well. I loved everything about his story. I loved everything about his journey. Like clearly an incredible worker. I love dudes that fight through adversity, right? Because you're always going to hit a wall in the NBA. If you're a young player, unless you're LeBron James, Victor Wembanyama, probably like whatever, you're always going to hit a wall in the NBA at some point. And I love guys that have proved that they can scale it already, that they're not like going to get frustrated and they're not going to, you know, be a player, especially like these five-star guys that have never experienced anything but success a lot of the time entering the NBA. Quentin Grimes was a five-star that failed essentially and then completely totally changed who he was he changed his identity as a player to go from being a point guard to a three and d guard and now he's like kind of combining the two spins you know what quentin grimes is averaging over his last 15 games in the nba enlighten us sam please 15 points three and a half rebounds 2.4 assists shooting 48 percent from the field 42 percent from three 78 percent from the line quentin grimes is like a starting two guard right now in the nba just straight up like, he is a good starting two guard in the NBA. Uh, he's going to be like a top 10 guy in this class, it feels like. Uh, I don't know. This is a good class. Probably a like top 12 guy in this class at the very least. He looks awesome. He looks so, so good. And he was a guy that I remember the first podcast we did after you joined the show. Uh, we pointed out that he was the real winner of Summer League last yeah. year. Like, he was the best player at Summer League last year. That has translated entirely. He is like every bit of someone who looked like they did not belong at summer league. And now like fully looks like they belong in the NBA point blank across the board. I, I I love everything I've seen about Quentin Grimes uh, over the last month and a half. He looks like a real player in the NBA. Yeah. He's been, he's been fantastic. Sam exactly what the Knicks needed out of that position. Okay, the last guy that like, well, no, there are two more guys that I feel like we like genuinely have to talk about. Sure. Alper and Shangun is first. I talked a decent amount about Alper and Shangun uh, on the pod with Schindler when I talked about like the Rockets and I talked about like not totally knowing what Alper and Shangun is. I would honestly like for my take on that, I would probably just go back and listen to that podcast because I like a lot of the skills. I like a lot of what he can do offensively as a playmaker, as a passer. He has real marginal advantage on opposing centers with his ability to like handle the ball and honestly like drive around them a lot of the time. His footwork is awesome. Uh, His feel is super, super high level on offense. I just really think he's like desperately bad on defense. Like I, I think he's like really, really, really bad. I think he gets like, hung out to dry a lot by the guards not playing well on defense. But I also think he's not very good uh, as a defensive player at all. Like, it re- really, in, like, any capacity. I don't need to say anything else other than that. Like, I don't I – don't, I've I've jumped into it. I've listened to – I think it's literally the last episode I did with Schindler. I don't, I don't feel the need to, like, dive into Shengun anymore. And I don't have too much to add additionally to that other than it's not just that he's a poor defender right now. It's that I don't know what scheme would ever save him. 
because drop isn't going to help him. He's just not vertical enough at protecting the rim. He, he tries to play vertically, but then he loses his ability to react at the last second to anybody who tries to worm around him. I don't think that he's quick enough to be great at the level of the ball or playing more aggressively. Like, I, I, I think that that's what they have to do for think, what it's, if they're going to, I think that's their best avenue for it's, what it's worth. It's he's not prob- big enough to be a drop guy. No. I think he has good enough feet. He's not laterally quick, but like, I think that that's the best that you can do is the play ch- at the level and recover. The challenge with playing at the level of the ball, particularly if the Rockets fancy themselves as a postseason team the next couple of years, is smart guards who can draw that out into a switch. And, and that's that's where Shengun's just going to get cooked. So I I don't know. I don't know what the, the answer is. Yeah. Um, really, really impactful offensive player. <laughs> like – if you told me that like he's like Nikola Vucevic who like made multiple all-star games on offense, if he learns to shoot from the mid-range, I would buy that. It's just that like because of the defense, because of the lack of shooting right now, and because like he's not a great like this is something I mentioned on the last show. Like he's not a great defensive rebounder. Like he's okay at it, but for a center, he's not great at it. He doesn't like end possessions at the level you want him to. He's kind of got the T-Rex arms. Like he doesn't get all the way up for extension for some of these boards. And he's just not like enormous, right? Like he's 6'9", playing center. Um, And it's like a 6'10", 6'11", wingspan. So it's tougher, yeah, uh, for him. But look, he has real skill on offense. Like I said, like if, if you told me he ends up like putting up some years that are like Vucevic level in terms of, scoring and efficiency i would buy that for sure yeah okay uh the last guy i want to talk about was bones highland in terms of like had to talk about basically um bones has been very creative (laughs) let's go with creative on offense uh he is shooting 41 percent from three and takes six of them per game and averages 14 points per game uh he like basically runs second units for denver a lot of the time i don't really know what he is yet because the defense is very suboptimal (laughs) um like really shows in front of anybody but i do think that he is so good at generating his pull-up shot that he's probably going to be a really high-level bench scorer for a long time. Well, and that's the thing. I I think we – I mentioned earlier about kind of being outside of the top 10 past the point in this draft class where we're finding high-level scorers. Uh, I mean that in terms of guys who can be a focal point on an offense, particularly in closing lineups. I think Bones Highland, we know – that he can do that off the bench. He is instant offense. He can drill shots from three, creates a ton of space on his step backs. But I don't know if he does that reliably or well enough to ever move into a starting rotation and be more than just that like instant offensive punch off of the bench. Uh, I like yeah. the confidence that he plays with. I think that this Denver team in particular really needs that element on their bench. So he, because he provides a service to a team that doesn't already have that, has found value early in his career. Uh, but I'm, I'm with you. I don't think that this is going to turn into the major rags to riches story where he's averaging 20 a game in the NBA. I just, I don't quite see that. Uh, let's just kind of wrap up. Let's go rapid fire through some of these guys. Yep. Uh, Chris Duarte has struggled quite a bit this year. It feels like he's been hurt for yep. a lot of the time. Uh, 
Chris Duarte, by the way, do you know how much uh, younger Chris Duarte is than Miles Turner? What, two years, three years? Uh, under two years. It's like under a year two, and a half, geez. basically. Um, yeah, oh, he's, he's a year and I think like 80 days younger. Jeez. So it, it'll be interesting to see where he ends up uh, because he needs to be able to shoot, I think, at a certain point. I think that's that was the the hope for him and 35% for his career. Uh, not quite enough to justify the long leash that that he would want. Uh, I, I got to bring up one other guy here if we're doing rapid fire, Sam, is uh, actually somebody who's eighth in this class in overall minutes per game. That's Ayo Desunmu for Chicago. He's, yeah. he's the one other guy that I'd want to dive into here. Uh, 50% from the field, 36% from three long armed defends his ass off kind of fits into that Chicago bulls, like, you know, formula of role players right now where they're more ball movers and floor spacers with high IQ around all of the scoring nucleus that they've, they've put together. Uh, I really like Io. I think he's got a higher ceiling than, he might get credit for uh, not sure what the next part of his game is to develop, but like there are worse things in the world than letting him come off with dribble handoffs, getting downhill or, you know, second side ball screen for, for an offense. I, I think he's been pretty competent for them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. He's like a borderline starter for them. I know he started like 30 games, but you know, obviously Lonzo is out. They've dealt with some injury yeah. stuff. Um, you know, averaging 10 points, three rebounds, three assists, 50% from the field. He still does not get treated like a shooter, which ends up being a substantial issue for someone who is more of a role player. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's fine. Like <laughs> it feels, he feels like he's going to be like a good rotation player for a decade in the yeah. NBA, which is super valuable. Um, the less said about James Booknight at this point, the better. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. been a substantial struggle for him at this point. And look, like he went to that disaster situation in Charlotte, but I mean, shooting 33% from the field and 25% from three, there's just not much more to say other than that. Uh, I can't remember, were you a Cam Thomas guy or not a Cam Thomas guy? Yeah, I was uh, mid-20s on him. Yeah, I liked Cam Thomas. Yeah, he's had a couple of big games. Like he had a 33-point outburst against Indiana earlier this year. Um, I think he had 21 earlier this year at one point. But it just feels like a score to me at the end of the day. Uh, Josh Christopher, I think, looks kind of like a miss, if I'm being yep. completely honest. Um, have not loved what I've seen from him at any point. Kind of running through, you know, just – Real quick. Oh, we should, we should talk about uh, Corey Kispert. I think Corey Kispert actually looks like a legit rotation player. Yep. He is shooting, I think like a billion percent from three 41. Now looking at the numbers, uh, his problem is that like, it feels like everything takes a while to develop. And I wonder if he's ever going to shoot threes at volume in the way that he needs to, but like that, that's the difference between be, him being a starter and a like bench player and a bench floor spacer. Uh, he starts a lot of games for the Washington Wizards, but yeah, there, there's there's something there with Corey Kispert. I actually quite like what I've seen. Yeah, yeah, he's been solid. Um, you know, I think there are three guys for the Oklahoma City Thunder who have gotten some minutes thus far early in their career: Trey Mann, 
uh, Aaron Wiggins and Jeremiah Robinson Earl. This if, is, if you had to pick one, who would you pick out of those guys? I'd pick Robinson Earl for the defense and the consistency that he brings on that end of the floor. Uh, I agree with you. But I think this is the the period over the next four or five months finishing out this season and into how they construct their roster this coming summer where we figure out who of those guys are legit pieces of the, the rotation or at least the organization moving forward and who are getting minutes and opportunities as a byproduct of the Thunder being so young. Yeah, like here's the thing. They're also going to come under a roster crunch at some point. Like they just have so many assets and they're going to have to consolidate some of these assets at some point. Um, Like I like Aaron Wiggins. I think he's been pretty good, like for a second round pick throughout the course of his career. Looks like a real, certainly back end of the rotation player, I would say. Um, But yeah, no, like what do you do with that? Like that, that has value on a minimum deal for the next couple of years. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. Deuce, Deuce McBride has been super valuable defensively for the Knicks at times. He's had offensive moments uh, where he's been good, but for the most part, it's been a struggle. His ability at the point of attack, though, has been just absolutely killer for the Knicks defense uh, when he comes off the bench. And look, like despite the fact that he's shooting 36% from the field and 28% from three, he has like taken that backup point guard role and run with it over the course of the last month and a half while this team has been really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think Deuce has, has been really, really solid for them. The Knicks and the Pelicans got multiple players out of this draft class who have come in and been really valuable role players from the jump. And I think the, the Pelicans you know, integrated those guys early into their rookie season. Uh, you know, Jose Alvarado wasn't drafted, but he found his way to be really impactful for them a little bit as a rookie. I think that he's probably hit closer to his ceiling than some of the other guys that we might talk about. But the Pelicans found three guys that they could depend upon to be borderline rotation guys right out of the jump. The Knicks, yeah. it, it took Thibodeau a little bit longer to trust some of these guys. But we're looking at a, a draft class now that includes Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride, and Jericho Sims. I think that those are three NBA roster-worthy guys. Grimes started caliber. McBride definitely rotation-worthy. I think you can do a hell of a lot worse than Jericho Sims as your kind of third big break glass in case of emergency guy. So I like exactly what those two teams have done. I think it's helped raise their level of play by having those role players to plug in, which leads to their, their success this season being no accident. Yeah, look, I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, another guy we should talk about real quick is Usman Garuba. He's had minutes that have been positive because he's a good offensive rebounder, defender, passer. Like he's actually a connective player that does dirty work in Houston in a situation that desperately calls for it. Uh, he's just not good enough on offense is the problem. Uh, right now. I know. I just, I love Garuba so much. His defense and his toughness shows every time he's on the floor. I absolutely adore him for that. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, okay. Is there, I want to run through. Oh, we should mention Austin Reeves has yeah. been very helpful for the Lakers. Yeah, uh, Austin Reeves is like actually a rotation player that, I mean, he's a free agent this summer. He's going to get, he's going to get quite a bit of money. I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's done really well for the Lakers in a position that they desperately need. Like, Austin Reeves is 24. He's averaging 11 points, three rebounds, two assists, shooting 49% from the field, 36% from three, 89% from the line, while being, like, 
pretty okay on defense for the most part. Yeah. yeah that guy been... gets like eight figures in free agency now. My God, you're right. Wow. I love the NBA. That, seriously, he's going to oh. get like 40 to $50 million, I think, in free agency. Jeez. And people are going to be like, wait, what just happened? And it's going to be like, no, wait, like he's actually really good and really valuable. Yeah, he's he's been he's been very very good for them. He definitely has. Do you know who's currently leading the Lakers in minutes played? Is it Austin? <laughs> no, it's LeBron James. Yeah. But Austin Reeves is currently tied <laughs> with Russell Westbrook for second, and it's like very close. It's within like two <laughs> games worth of minutes. Good for him, man. Good for him. We also uh, we didn't talk about uh, Kendrick Perkins' favorite guy, Moody Moses. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Moses, Moses is going to be okay. I think long-term yeah. it's just that like, yeah, it's not ideal at this point. Not ideal at all. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, he shows flashes. I just, I thought that he processed the game a little bit quicker, I think than he does right now. And that'll improve. And he ha- he's like six foot six, super long arms. He shoots it well already from three, like shooting 37% from three. He's going to be fine. Like he might turn into a starter, but I loved Moody pre-draft. I think I had him at like eight or so. And I thought he'd be more ready than he is in terms of processing the game. Yeah. I I'd like to see him in a system like one in Dallas where he's just told to go spot up in the corners, drill shots on offense, and he can use his length a little bit more on the defensive end of the floor. Like I, I worry if the Golden State Warriors system just isn't the right one for him. That might be right. Maybe he is the guy that they look to. I mean, like, look, they should move Wiseman, I think. But, like, maybe he is the guy that they look to use as, like, a trade asset if they have to down the road. Because you might, you actually might be right about that in terms of, like, fit on the scheme. Yeah, we'll see. It's it's still early. It hasn't been great from him, but he's been competent enough in some times when he gets out there. And, look, he works his ass off. Like, that that guy is going to be a pro for even beyond his rookie contract just because he finds ways to to keep working, keep working, keep working. Yeah. He's also super young. He's still only 20 years old. Like he's definitely going to be a rotation player in the NBA. Like I feel very good about that by the time he's like 22. I thought there was more upside in terms of creation. And I thought that he processed it a little bit quicker. Um, And he just may not quite be that guy at this point. Uh, let's see here. Is there anyone else from the 2021 draft that we need to talk about? Uh, Jalen Johnson's been okay at times this year. I would say I still just can't shoot, which is a significant problem for a role player. Dayron Sharp has shown some flashes at times this year. I think, uh, you know, rebounds the ball super well has been actually pretty impactful in the minutes he's played. I think, um, you know, I think that, Kessler Edwards is still just like not playing a lot, although I'm intrigued at some point that that could change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really it. I think at this point, that's yeah. re- I think we've gone through everyone that's played at like a real level. I mean, who, who here's a, here's a trivia time for okay. you now that I have this list. Uh-oh. Oh boy. Uh, among first round picks, there's only one player that has not played at least a hundred minutes in the NBA thus far in the oh. 2021 NBA draft. Who is it? Springer. It's Jaden Springer. Jaden yeah. Springer has played 21 NBA minutes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wasn't. Is, I was uh, not high on him pre-draft. I just I struggled to find where his fit would come in in an NBA team. That doesn't surprise me. I liked the idea of him, but then I just kept like ticking him down, ticking him down, ticking him down the board as I went. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting one for sure. It hasn't yeah. quite worked out. Uh, another undrafted guy we should note is another one of those Pelicans hits, Jose Alvarado. Yeah. Uh, just a really solid backup point guard who defends his ass off. Has had a couple of games where he's just been on fire from three. Super helpful backup point guard. Yeah, again, great finds by teams like the Pelicans and the Knicks. Deeper in the second round or undrafted areas, as well as hitting on good role players early, has raised the ceiling of their franchises and allowed them to get to a competent level rather quickly. And then you see teams like the Hornets, who have un- unfortunately struck out a little bit with guys like Book Knight and Guy Jones and, and JT Thor, like haven't gotten tangible NBA impact from them yet. It's part of the reason why they haven't been able to withstand some of the injuries that they've gone through this year. You're being kind saying a little bit yes, on the I Charlotte am. Hornets that they've struck out. Yeah. Uh, when was the last Charlotte Hornets draft pick other than LaMelo that like is an unequivocal success? I, I mean, because I, I don't think you can consider Miles Bridges right. that anymore. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Uh, I PJ Washington is sort of one. Yeah, that's it. That's been a long time. I mean, I, I guess that like it's Jaden McDaniels and Cody Martin, but like they, they don't really move the needle necessarily. Right. I, I will say this to be positive about the Hornets here. I think that Mark Williams is a hit. Uh, I did too. I think Mark Williams, like in the minutes he's played, so far actually looks like pretty good. Yeah. Um, looks very, very effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Hornets need to lean into him a little bit more for the rest of the year because the, the big I, men that they have just, it's not going to move the needle long term. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay. That's it. That's it. Spins. Uh, you have anything else you need to mention? I don't. Baba Miller is free. It's a good week. <laughs> yeah. You're just pumped. You're, you're ready, man. Uh, ready. you're ready for Baba Miller to be free. Uh, I watched a bunch of like random movies this weekend. Nothing. I feel like I didn't see anything that like blew my socks off. Um, Didn't really vibe with white noise. Um, What else? Is that the, is that, is white noise the old Kevin Costner one? No, white noise is the new Adam driver movie. That's based on the Dom DeLillo, like very famous novel. Um, Let's see. I saw something in the dirt, which is um, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. They're, they've done like some independent movies that are really interesting uh, in the sci-fi space. It was like a fun hangout movie that they clearly like just got bored during COVID and made. Um, oh, I also watched uh, Butakalam, which is an Indian horror movie uh, that has gotten really, really good reviews. That thing was... Hey, that, that fucked me and Laura up, man. That was, <laughs> that was, that was wild. It was like a haunted house movie, like where like these people are living in like a house that is, yeah, it was, it was fucked up, man. That was oh good. It, it wasn't like amazing, but like it was, it was really good. <laughs> I'm speechless, Sam. I don't know what to say after that. We wow. seriously, Laura and I go hunting for horror movies 
we will find if you have released a horror movie around the world that has gotten good reviews we will find it that is it we will find the show we will find the movie and we will be good but uh this one this one fucked us up this is good we liked it (laughs) oh geez sam okay spins tell the people where they can find your work tell the people what's going on in your life yeah, Sam, again, thanks for having me. Always a blast being here talking shop with you. Uh, find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore. YouTube is my name, Adam Spinella or Substack, the box and one dot substack dot com. Uh, been real, real busy in the in the heart of our basketball season right here with the team that I coach. So uh, might be a little lighter on the YouTube and a little heavier on some of the written thought coming up. But uh, it's College Hoops is in full swing. It was a really entertaining weekend, and Baba Miller is back, so I'm going to have a really joyous week coming up. That's true. I have a mock draft coming up this week on The Athletic. Uh, that's really it on the website side. We'll have Schindler on later this week. We'll have another uh, show, NBA side, later this week. Then – Next Sunday, Spins and I are going to get back into a couple of draft things for sure. We're going to talk draft. Um, We might do a back and forth mock draft next week. Not quite positive yet if we're going to do that, but maybe we'll do it. I also owe the listeners a mailbag. I'm very aware of that. It is top of my mind. Don't worry. I just, it's, it got lost in the shuffle when I got super sick. Um, Absolutely, we'll do so on the YouTube channel. Don't worry, that that will come. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.